As a pastor, you have to right your wrongs. So we're trying to remedy the chocolate problem here. I hope everyone had a good Christmas. And I have a question now for all the grown-ups. How many of you, first of all, how many of you had a good Christmas? Okay, some, not everybody. This has been a tough Christmas, and I know, and some of our members are watching live stream, and uh, some have been even battling COVID and are not with us right now, and we want to send our love out to you and pray for you. Sometimes Christmases don't turn out the way we had hoped or expected. But uh, there's another question I wanted to ask you. How many of you found Jesus this Christmas? Maybe I should rephrase that a little bit. How many of you were looking for Jesus this Christmas? And the reason I'm asking this is not to make you feel guilty. I'm asking because Christmas can be one of the hardest times of the year to find Jesus. Christmas can be a challenging time of year. I recall when I was on call as a physician over Christmas time, I would get phone calls from people who were just lonely or who were just struggling. They were without family, they were sick or they were ill. All the whistles and bells that we typically look forward to at Christmas had been taken from them. And it was challenging and it was hard. And sometimes at Christmas, it can be hard to find Jesus. Years ago, I was actually asked to look for and find Jesus for Christmas. I was traveling through Spain and someone very near and dear to me, a very devout evangelical Christian, asked me to look for a baby Jesus for her nativity set. She had a set that had been made by the Yadro Porcelain Company in Spain. She had all the wise men, but she was missing the most important piece, the baby Jesus. And so there was a a nativity crisis. And I was given this mission impossible. It was a task that I received to find a baby Jesus at one of the Yadro Porcelain outlets somewhere in Spain. So in my broken college Spanish, I trekked through different stores, and uh, I'm not so proud to tell you I did indeed find a baby Jesus, and I want to show him to you. Can you show that for me? Our team is going to show you. There he is, and I want to let you know that if you're looking for a baby Jesus, you can find him. He'll cost you $110 now on eBay. So I don't think he's valued quite as much as I hope because I think that was close to what I paid for him 20 years ago. And as I took one look at this baby Jesus, and as my friend Nabil, who was traveling with me, took one look at the baby Jesus that I found, he said, if that is indeed the baby Jesus, then the virgin birth was a greater miracle than I had anticipated if this is what came out of Mary's womb. Well, I I bring this up to you, obviously, to make fun of myself, but obviously to point out, too, that obviously this Jesus bears absolutely no resemblance to what you heard today and what we sang about, right? No resemblance whatsoever. And it bears no resemblance to the gospel. But brothers and sisters, the same can be said of much that bears the name of Jesus, including much of what we call Christmas and Christianity. And it's one of the reasons that Christmas was banned, not in Russia and not in China, but it was actually banned in New England in 1659. And it was banned by the Puritans for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. It was actually Christians, our spiritual forefathers, the Puritans, who for a season they banned Christmas. Now, before we start to throw eggs at them, I think we have to appreciate and understand one of their burdens and concerns was increasingly Christmas had little to do with Jesus or the gospel, and it increasingly 
muddied the waters and stopped people from beholding the beauty and the goodness and the glory of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But the good news of God's word is that the help that we need to find the real Jesus, God mercifully has given us, not in a figurine. He's given it to us in his word. And it's worth thinking, brothers and sisters, as we come back and listen, I'm not against Christmas. As people, as you know me, I love Christmas. I'm a big Christmas guy. But at the end of the day, it's worth seeing, just like we talked about with the children, whether it be chocolate, coffee, or different things, at the end of the day, we want to appreciate and we don't want to miss out on what Christmas is really about. That Christmas is not a celebration about Christmas. Ultimately, it's a celebration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's a celebration about who he is according to God's word and what he came to do. And this is very much the reason that God sent a man named John the Baptist to his people 2,000 years ago. Because God in his mercy saw that his people, even though they knew a lot of the Bible, even though they knew a lot about God, even though they were very familiar with many things about God, they needed his help to appreciate who Jesus is and what he'd come to do. God's desire for his people is that they would see the infinite greatness of his love, that they would be able to see the beauty and glory of who Jesus is. And sadly, what had happened over many years is really many, in many ways, religion and church tradition and many things that people did started to get in the way of them appreciating what the gospel and who God is and who his son is and why he sent his son into the world to come near to us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12. And this is really John the Baptist's ministry. And I know this may seem strange for some. What is this for a Christmas uh, sermon? But we've been walking our way through John the Baptist's ministry, and so we're just continuing on with where we left off. But ultimately... God's showing us through John the Baptist's ministry what he wants us to appreciate and understand about his love for us and why he sent his son into the world at Christmas. Well, Matthew 3, verse 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up stones. God is able, excuse me, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, very clearly as we hear these God-breathed words of Matthew, John the Baptist's testimony about who Jesus is and about who the one who is coming after him is markedly different, not just from our nativity scenes and our Christmas cards, but from what most of us want to believe about Jesus, the king who gathers his wheat into the barn and burns the chaff with unquenchable fire is not the king who most people are looking for 
Not just at Christmas, but let's be honest about it any time of the year. It's not what we're looking for. And this is why the Lord, in His mercy, sends John the Baptist. Because, brothers and sisters, this is the king who we need. It might not be the king we're looking for, but it's the king we so desperately need. And it brings us to our first point for this morning. John the Baptist has come to bring the people of Israel or the people of Judea, the Jewish people, back to God's word. And essentially, John the Baptist is a summation of the Old Testament. And he's showing them that God's word reminds God people who he truly is and what he truly requires of us. Who God is and what he truly requires of us. And this is something that had been lost. This is something that the people of God had forgotten in spite of all their Bible learning and in spite of all their Bible knowledge. And because of that, they weren't ready when Christ was coming. They didn't know what they were looking for or what they should look for. They were unable to recognize God's goodness and his love. And I know many of you have experienced that at different times at Christmas. You get a gift and you're not sure what you're getting. Sometimes we fail. I, my wife reminds me many times how she's gotten me these gifts that I look at very skeptically at. And in part, over time, we realize that's my ignorance, my lack of appreciation, my lack of understanding that there's actually something I need or a blind spot that she's in tune with and that I'm completely checked out with because I'm busy with other things. And that's a little bit of what was happening clearly at that time when John the Baptist came. And God in kindness and mercy is coming and he's sending John the Baptist to bring them back to his word, to remind them who he is and what he requires of his people in order to get them ready so that when his son, Jesus, comes, they're ready. As a teenager, not infrequently, my parents, when they were away, they would graciously give me a call and they would let me know when they were coming home. Why would they do it? Mark, we're going to be home in a half an hour. Why would they do that? Well, I suspect they had some idea that I needed that reminder. That the stereo might be played really loud, that things might be messy, that I was busy taking care of other things. And when they made that call, they were reminding me, Mark, we're still your parents. This is still our home, not your home. And when we come home, graciously, they were giving me a little bit of time to get it together and remember, okay, that their home was not my kingdom, that I was still their son. And they gave me a chance to get it together before the reckoning happened. But in verse 1 through 6, Matthew is showing us that John the Baptist, his message and his ministry are essentially for the people of God. As harsh as it sounds, and I know it sounds harsh on Christmas Day, essentially... John the Baptist's message and his ministry, and even John the Baptist himself, it's a, uh, he's a merciful reminder of who the Lord is and what he requires of his people, according to his word. And it's in this way that John the Baptist, as Jesus reminds us, is really he's more than just a prophet. He is literally the voice, not a voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And what all the gospel writers put together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the apostles, Peter, Paul, what they all point out as they talk about John the Baptist's ministry as being a foundational part of the gospel. That John the Baptist is essentially a once in history, once in scripture, once in a lifetime phenomena. He is actually the culmination and summation of the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament has a message and a ministry that is essentially there to prepare us for the love of God. To prepare us for God coming to dwell with his people. That's what the entire Old Testament is about. It's laying down who God is and what he requires of his people so that when he comes, 
We're not caught unawares, but we can appreciate and enjoy to the fullest the love of God, that we can dwell with God in peace, that we're not divided and we're not separated, that we're ready to receive all the goodness that God has in store for us. And John the Baptist has really come at the top of the wave as the culmination of the entire testimony of the Old Testament to get God's people ready. And if you look at his message... Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Essentially, that's a summation of the entire Old Testament, of all of God's word. Now, we lose sight of that because we get focused on let's do this or let's take care of this or we want to know about this detail about, of theology. But essentially, was we, we consider that. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that tell us? First, it tells us that God is, the God of the Bible is, our creator our Redeemer and our King. That the entirety of our lives, we're accountable to Him. We're answerable to Him for everything that we do, everything that we say, every aspect of our life. And we're accountable not based on our standards of what we think is right or wrong or what we think is good. We're accountable based on His standard of what he desires of us, because we are his creation. And for the Jewish people, they were created by his work of salvation and his covenant. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that statement, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is a reminder, hey, God is the king. And guess what? He's a king who is not far away, but he is a king who is near. He is not the watchmaker who has made the watch and has walked off and it's supposed to function on its own. He's actually listening, he's paying attention, he's aware, and he has a plan to come to be with his people. And as we consider that, brothers and sisters, we see that ultimately God's desire for his people are really simply two things. His standard, what he requires of them. It's simply that his people would believe he is who he says he is according to his word and that they would love him as he has loved them. It's very simple. It's not complicated. That's what, from Genesis all the way to Malachi in the Old Testament. That's what it's about over and over and over again. And that testimony of repentance is God continually telling his people who are more interested in trusting and loving in themselves rather than God. They're busy with their own things to say, hey, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. My desire is that you would know me for who I truly am according to my word, that you would trust me, that I love and care for you perfectly. And that you would love me and love one another as I have loved you. And there are two core texts in the Old Testament that we can say, really, it sums up the entire message of the Old Testament. Could I have my next slide, please? Is that possible? Thank you. It's Deuteronomy 6.4 and Proverbs 3.5-8. through 8. Deuteronomy 6.4 is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God's simple requirement that sums up the entirety, really, of the Old Testament. You need to know who I am. You don't make it up as you go along about what you think I like, whether I like Mass or I don't like Mass or that I'm Republican or I'm Democrat. No, you need to know who I am. You need to love me as I have loved you with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's repentance, right? It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Essentially, the Lord is telling his people, listen, I want you to look for me and I want you to look to me rather than looking to yourself or the things of this world for your life and for your love and for every aspect of all that I have given you. 
And as you read through the Old Testament, you see that God's plan of salvation is ultimately to show his people who he is and what he requires of them. And part of that plan of salvation that he's promised through the law and the Psalms and the prophets is that one day he himself will come to make things right. Because as you walk through the Old Testament, what's shown? Well, we don't really love God and we don't really trust him. It's not how we rule. And so throughout the Old Testament, God shows them his plan right from the beginning is, look, one day I'm going to come and I'm going to make things right. And how is the Lord going to make paths straight? Well, he shows them he's going to judge and destroy all that is wicked and evil. And the definition of what is wicked and evil is all that does not love and trust the Lord. And that judgment is what is referred to, what John the Baptist is referring to here as the promised wrath to come. That's God's just judgment. He'll delay, he'll delay, he'll delay. He'll call you back, he'll call you back, he'll call you back and say, trust me, trust me, look to me. Trust in my love for you. But there's a point that's going to come where he finally is going to come himself and he's going to hold us accountable. And he's going to separate those who love him and trust him from those who have rejected his love and those who have rejected faith in him. Now that's all the way through the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, over and over and over again. This is God's standard. This is God's dividing line. And it's interesting as you go through, you see God's not asking you to be perfect. God's not coming and say, be something you're not. God's not coming and saying to you, hey, you have to have it all together. You look at the Old Testament saints. Jacob, he was a weasel, right? Abraham, he did some good things and he did some not so good things, okay? You just walk through. Moses had an anger problem. You walk through. But the heart of the issue that he calls his people is to say, hey, you need to understand you can't fix everything yourself. You can't make it better. You can't save yourself. You have a problem that's called sin. And by your very nature, you don't want to look to me for help. You want to look to yourselves to say that you can do everything and make everything right. The testimony, as you walk through, through the people of faith, they are people who are called and chosen by God and shown his love and mercy, but ultimately they're willing to receive that love and mercy. They're willing to say, look, I don't have it together. I need to trust in the Lord. I need to look to him. Why? Because it's who God is and what he requires. Because he is our creator, he is our redeemer, he is our king. He is holy and he is wholly merciful to those who are willing to look to him rather than than themselves. Well, this has always been God's standard of what he requires for his people. And as we come to John the Baptist's message, you see, okay, this is essentially what John the Baptist is talking about. He's basically summarizing, and he is the summation of the Old Testament prophets, coming to God's people to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and be baptized for repentance to turn away from yourselves and throw yourselves upon the mercy of God. Why? Because according to God's standard and according to God's word, not your opinions and not your traditions and not your time in the synagogue or the temple and not by all the means with which you measure your religiosity, according to God's standard, do you love him with all your heart, mind, and soul? And do you believe or trust in him for who he is according to his word? By that standard, you fall short. Your good works, everything that you do, it's not good enough. And that brings us to our, our second point for this morning. God's word shows us who we truly are and what we truly need. This is why God sent John the Baptist. He sent them first to say, look, this is who God is and this is what he expects of you. Secondly, this is who you are, and this is what you need. If, if God is who he says he is, if he's holy, if he's righteous, and he's also merciful, and what he expects of you is 
Really, that you would love him and love one another as he has loved you. Where does that put you? Where do you stand before the Lord? Not are you better than the person next to you? Did you give better gifts? Did you give more money in the church offering? Did you read more of the Bible? No, by God's standard, trusting in the Lord with all your heart and loving him with all your heart and a life that's in keeping with that. Well, where exactly do you stand? Well, we see that when John the Baptist says to everyone in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes on and says to the Pharisees and Sadducees who are the most religious and they're the religious leaders of the day. In verse 7 and 8, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Very clearly the point that he's making is that by the standard of God's word and by the standard of God's love, From the top to the bottom, God's people don't cut it. By God's standard, they are not a people who have loved and trusted the Lord their God with all their heart and mind and soul. They aren't. Maybe sometimes, maybe 50% of the time, maybe 40%, maybe 60%, but at the end of the day, As you walk through the Old Testament and as you look through the world and you look at all of us, we come and we say, okay, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That more often than not, and Christmas can be an example of this, we can be very busy looking at ourselves or the things that we want or the things that we desire and placing our hope in those things. And that's why we get disappointed and discouraged, right? We had hoped that we'd have a nice meal with the family. We had hoped that we would have no argument over Christmas. We hoped that we would get the gift that we wanted. We hoped that we would be able to spend time with A, B, C, D, or E. And when those things are taken away, hey, I'm right there with you. Disappointed, discouraged, sad. Lord, why is this happening? But at the end of the day, those things just show us, brothers and sisters, where our love is and where our trust is in our hearts. And we see, as John the Baptist points out, and I know it sounds like he's being harsh, but really as you walk through the Old Testament, it's the same message. What it reveals is try as we might, as best we can, we are unable to love God as he loves us. And we're unable to trust him in the way that he asks. Why is that? Because our hearts are turned away from God. By nature we are sinners and we're sinful. That is who we are. And all John the Baptist is doing in kindness and mercy is he's shining the light on that for the people so that they can see what they really need. And what is it that they really need? They don't need another visit to the temple. They don't need another sacrifice. They don't need more friends. They don't need a better job. They don't even need better family. Do we ever wish for that sometimes at Christmas? What they need is the Lord himself. They need God's love and they need God's mercy. They need his compassion and they need his forgiveness and they need his power in their lives to come in and change who they are at the core of who they are. They need something more than their best. That's essentially what John the Baptist is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the best at the game at being religious and looking like you knew a lot of the Bible and you could be pleasing to God. He was showing them that according to God's word, we all have proven over and over again That at the end of the day, on our own, we're unable and we're unwilling to love and trust God and to love one another as God has loved us. And so that's why he comes and and he warns them. And he says to them, look, you're in trouble. Because God has promised to come. And when he comes, there's going to be a reckoning. And he's going to divide those who love and trust in him and have desperately thrown themselves on the mercy of God And those who are kind of like, I'm good enough. I'm okay. Because what John the Baptist is showing them as he shows who they truly are, he's saying, look, what you truly need is not more of you. You need the presence of the Lord God himself in your life. 
to turn you around. And that's why he says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 1.11, trees bearing fruit were God's gift of his grace to all of creation. He creates fruit trees in order for Adam and Eve in order to have food. And then he creates a garden that's filled with fruit trees. And that fruit is a testimony of his love for Adam and Eve, that I provided everything that you need. And that fruit is a testimony of God's life and his creation and his ability to do for man and woman what they cannot do for themselves. How many of you can make fruit? I bet you some of you can make a mean apple pie. No doubt about that. And you can bring it my way. But at the end of the day, none of us can make fruit. Fruit is a work of creation. It's a work of the Lord. Fruit is a testimony to that. And throughout the scriptures, as you go through, God uses fruit as an illustration to show what we're really made of, what we produce, what comes naturally to us. And when you go to the Psalms, we see that Psalm 1, which is really like a foundation and a starting point for all of the Psalms. And it encapsulates really, I believe, the entirety of the Old Testament. What does Psalm 1 say? Talks about blessed is the man. Talks about two types of men. A man who's blessed and a man who is cursed, the scoffer. Two different types of men. And what is it about that man who is blessed? Well, he delights in the law of the Lord. He doesn't stand, right? He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, mocking. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't take the counsel of the wicked. And what does God say about this type of a man? This man who really trusts in the Lord and believes in who God is according to his word. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. There's evidence that he's really at the heart connected to the Lord. In verse 4 of Psalm 1, it says, The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. I'm trying to draw these connections for you, that John the Baptist isn't just pulling this out of the pocket, what he's saying and what he's warning about God coming. He's saying what's coming is the summation of all that God has promised. And part of what God's promised is an accountability Have we looked to the Lord for what we need? Or have we tried to make it up as we go along? Fruit in keeping with repentance, brothers and sisters, as you look at what John the Baptist is saying, is a life that is humbly desperate for God's mercy and God's salvation and God's love. That's why John the Baptist talks about baptism for repentance. It's not the same as our baptism in the church, okay, which is an affirmation that you belong to Christ. It's a baptism that's a preparation. It's a humble appeal. It's coming to the Lord and saying, I'm a mess. I'm not right with you. I don't meet your standards. I'm not good enough. So I need you to come and fix things and make things right. Because you can do it and I can't. New Testament scholar Leon Morris says, with regards to John the Baptist's statement, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying the word that John the Baptist used, he doesn't say fruits, he uses a singular, the word fruit. And he said the singular fruit is important. John is not inviting people to pile up good works. He's looking for a change in the orientation of the whole life that will result in fruitful living. He's looking in a change completely in the direction of their lives. That their lives have been lived looking at themselves. And instead they need to be looking to the God who loves them and created them and has called them to be his people. How? By placing their trust in him and not in themselves. So when John the Baptist says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and he's talking to the religious leaders, he's making the point, in actual fact, who are you as a people? You're people who lack fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he goes on to show them who they are. He says in verse 9, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
He's coming to the Pharisees and saying, rather than having a life of faith, a life that places its trust entirely in the mercy of God, God's compassion, God's forgiveness, God's kindness to sinners who place their trust in him. Rather than having a life of faith, what you're demonstrating with all your religiosity is a life of false presumption. A life of false presumption. There's two lives. The life of faith and a life of false presumption. A life that basically says, I'm good enough. I know what I'm doing. I'm okay. I presume everything's great. Based upon what? Based upon what I do. Okay? As opposed to what God's calling me to do, very simply, which is to look to Him. And John the Baptist is coming to the Pharisees and saying, Well, this is who you are. You're a people of false presumption. And he goes on to point out, he says, This false presumption is demonstrated. You don't even know who God is. Despite all your familiarity with the Bible, despite all your familiarity with the traditions, and why, why does that show? And why does that show fruit that you don't even know God? And brothers and sisters, the Pharisees and Sadducees are there to show us that we can know so much about the Bible, we can know so much about the traditions of the church, we can know so much about ministry, and we don't have a clue who God is. Well, he shows them. He says, God is able, for I tell you in verse 9, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's John the Baptist saying here? He's saying that salvation and children of God and those who are part of God's family, they're God's creation. And it's very encouraging because he shows nothing is impossible for God. Salvation is a mighty work of God. Fellowship with God, friendship with God is something that he gives freely and he's able to do. It's not a work of man. So don't go and presume of everything that you do and say that you've got it together, that you're making things right with God. God is able to take people who are even hard, and there's an implication I believe here. He's coming and saying, you're hard-hearted. You're stubborn. He's saying, well, guess what? God can turn even stones and raise them up to be children for Abraham. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And here he shows them, okay, this is who you are. And it's in love I'm showing you. You are a tree that is about to get cut down and it's about to get cut down at its very root. Because as much as you like to dress up who you are and what you are, the fruit of your life is one of false presumption that you're good to go. Years ago, when I lived in Los Angeles, I had two amazing Meyer lemon trees in the backyard. I used to have an abundance and share them with people. And then one of the trees stopped bearing fruit. And I went to my gardeners and said, what's going on? And they actually said to me, they said, look, there's, there's a problem with the tree, but let's not give up on it completely. Let's dig around the tree. We'll fertilize it and we'll prune it and we'll trim it back and let's see if we can get it back. And we tried that for several weeks. And at the end of it, I came back and said, what's the story? And they came and said, look, we're going to recommend that you cut it down. Because obviously the roots are damaged and sick. Something's in there. And if you don't do something now, it's going to spread to your other lemon tree and you're not going to have anything. So they cut it down. John the Baptist here is using an illustration that God has used throughout the entire Old Testament where he promises and says, look, ultimately I'm a just and good God. And my standard comes and I'm going to measure and measure people and evaluate people based on your fruit. Who you are, because your fruit is going to reveal what your roots are, what remains hidden, what other people can't see. Ultimately, your fruit is going to reveal. Are you a people who trust in my mercy and my love, or are you a people who trust in yourself? Well, up until that point, for the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were a people who trusted in themselves, their religiosity, and how well they knew the Scriptures, rather than the Lord. And they really even though they were coming to check out John the Baptist's baptism, they were kind of looky-loos and they were checking it out, but it was more or less, that's fine for the tax collectors and the prostitutes. We don't need that. We're actually good with God. We're right with God. And so John the Baptist is coming and say, whoa, 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 whoa. According to God's word, this is who you are. And because of that, 
The axe is coming for you. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. God's word shows us who the Christ is and what he has come to do. God's word shows us who the Christ is and what he has come to do. All of this is meant to be a build-up with John the Baptist to point and reveal and point our eyes to Christ and who he truly is according to God's word. That ultimately Christ is the greatest gift of God's love. This world has and will ever know. He is what we so desperately need. What was self-evident to all was that John the Baptist was more than a prophet. He was clearly a mighty man. And as you look at his ministry, you see that he really is greater than all the Old Testament prophets. And you could argue he's even greater than Moses. That ultimately, when you look at all the prophets and their ministries, all of them struggled with people where some of them listened and some of them didn't. But John the Baptist comes and the entire province of Judea comes out to the wilderness to be baptized by him or at least to check out his baptism. And we've made that point before. But John the Baptist comes in and he makes this statement who says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And when he makes that statement, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, he's making a statement that the one who's coming after me is more powerful. If you think this is powerful, that I'm able to preach and speak in an entire province of Judea and Jerusalem are all willing to come out and listen to me, you haven't seen anything yet. And ultimately, this is a preparation Because what you really need is someone who is stronger than you and stronger than me. And he makes this point that as great as he is, according to God's word, he is not even worthy to carry sandals. That was a slave's job. That was the lowest of the low. To carry the dirtiest part of their master's belongings. What trampled. It was considered to be probably in many places an insult or the lowliest of the low. And John the Baptist here, he points to the Old Testament prophets once again. And the testimony of God's word that who is the greatest and mightiest of all? Well, he explains, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's making a reference here to Ezekiel, to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, to all the Old Testament prophets, the statement ultimately that the one who is able to make things right is the Lord himself. And God's promise that he will fill his people with his own spirit and give them a new heart, a new life, a new beginning, a complete new set of desires and orientation that has an overwhelming desire to know and love God and to trust in Him and His mercy rather than trusting in ourselves or the things of this world. There's a portion which you might be familiar with when some of the leadership of Israel are filled with the Spirit of God. And Joshua gets a little bit jealous and he goes to Moses and says, do you want me to dampen this down and put a stop to this? And Moses is like, no way. This is a beautiful thing. The spirit of God has come into some of the people. I wish the entire nation would be filled with the spirit of God. And that's because I think in no small part, Moses knew that he just begged and begged and begged and begged and begged and begged and begged the people of God after all the miracles they've seen that they would turn to God that they would follow him and they would love him. And Moses' ministry was a case in point that you could see all the miracles in this world. You could see all the mighty power of God, but unless the power of God came into you and changed your heart, our sinful hearts are determined to love ourselves and do our own thing. And so John the Baptist's message here is actually one of great hope. That the one who is coming after him, this Jesus, is the one who will baptize people, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that statement, with fire, is a reference to being made holy or purified. You remember Isaiah meeting 
the Lord himself, the pre-incarnate Christ in Isaiah 6. And after encountering the glory of the Lord, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of sinful lips. And what does the Lord do? Calls an angel, and that angel goes to the altar and takes a hot, fiery coal, and he puts it on Isaiah's lips. The holiness of God presented in fire to come and to purify and take someone sinful and remove their sin and destroy it and remove it completely so that what is left is a vessel that is ready to serve and love God. Brothers and sisters, how many of us struggle with sin? How many of us struggle with sinful habits? How many of us struggle whether they're respectable desires or not respectable desires? And John the Baptist points out what we so desperately need, God has given in His Son someone who can come in And give us a new heart and a new life. And give us new desires. But also to purify us and cleanse us from our sin. Something that we can't do for ourselves. This is who Jesus is. And this is what he's come to do. But he's also come to separate. And it says his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And once again, these are all Old Testament references. But I believe John the Baptist is coming and giving many people great hope because he's pointing out who is it that brings the wheat into the barn. The wheat doesn't get up and crawl in on its own. It's the one who is coming, where he will gather those who are desperate for his mercy. They might not be perfect, but those who are willing to go to him for a new heart and a new life. And he himself is going to come and he's going to bring them into his barn, into his household. He himself is going to make them part of his household. But he's also going to make things right. And those who live on false presumption and those who are pretenders and those who have the appearance but are not real, he himself is going to separate. And those he will separate and those he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, brothers and sisters, where does that leave us? As you go through the rest of the Gospels, you see that this is in fact Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the gospel is a beautiful thing that gathers together sinners who are not worthy of God, but because they are desperate for his mercy and they look to him to save, he gathers them into his family and then into the church. But he also separates Jesus with the gospel and demonstrates and exposes those who pretended to be the leaders, but in fact, their lives were turned against the Lord. And then you see in 70 AD, the temple is burned and destroyed. The Sadducees disappear because they are the priests and they have nothing left to do because the temple is destroyed. You see that God's judgment comes true then and foreshadows a greater judgment to come when Christ is going to come again. That as he has come the first time and faithfully kept his promises, and as he faithfully brought people in and separated, he is going to do that to the fullest when he comes again. And it brings it back, brothers and sisters, for us at Christmas time. We can look at the Puritans and we can say, oh, they're Grinches, terrible people who banned Christmas. But I believe that many of the Puritans, and we have to say as Americans, look, it's not only the Puritans who believe in legislating to try and create change in America. But I believe many of them saw and realized that there was much about Christmas that was a celebration about Christmas rather than Christ. And when we start to focus on the celebration of the things of God rather than God himself, we lose sight of the infinite goodness and greatness and beauty of God's love. That he has sent what we need most. A God who is filled with mercy, a God who is filled with love, a God who is righteous, a God who can discern what is right and good, and a God 
who is able to give us a righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves. A righteousness that is from him and not from ourselves. And I believe Matthew here, as he writes about this, he's pointing out to the early church, you need to remember not only who Jesus is, you need to remember who you are. You are not a people necessarily of traditions and customs and gathering. You are a people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been cleansed from the fire from above, who Christ has died for, who he has brought into the church. You stand not on your performance, your ability, your good looks, and all the things that you do. You stand on one thing and one thing alone. You stand on the blood of Christ. And you stand on his work, not your own. You stand on his adequacy, not your adequacy. You stand on his mercy and compassion for wretched sinners like you. And that's why we can sing that song, Amazing Grace, that saved what? A wretch like me. And we can do it with hope, and we can do it with thankfulness, and we can do it with celebration. Well, brothers and sisters, my prayer for you this Christmas is that you would know the message of John the Baptist for yourself, that your life would not be one of false pretense and presuming that you know what's best, but instead that you might enjoy to the fullest, not just the mercy of the Lord, but that you might enjoy and see the beauty of who Jesus is, that you might see the giver of mercy, and that you might see that he came for you. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how we need you and what hope you give that at the end of the day, we are not able to make things right in America, in our homes, our lives, and our families. But hope that is placed in you is not hope that is unfounded. That as much as we fall short and as much as we disappoint and as much as Christmas may have disappointed us, At the end of the day, as the people of God, our hope is sure because our hope is in a love that saves. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that sermon and uh, just pointing our hearts back to Christ this Christmas season and, you know, as we anticipate uh, bringing in the new year um, this upcoming week. You know, there's many things that we can be worried about or anxious or uncertain about, uh, especially in light of just everything that's been going on in the world. But just being reminded uh, from Pastor Mark that we have Christ. Um, You know, God has given us his son um, and he abides within us and we have no reason to fear anything that may come our way. So uh, let's stand.